What's going on, good people, and welcome to Live by the Three, a Raptors podcast with your boy Curly. Give me a follow on Instagram at Live by the Period Number Three and on Twitter slash X at Live by the Zero Three. I'm joined today for the first weekly pod of Live by the Three. Uh, this gentleman, this sound basketball mind, is elusive on and off the court. <laughs> We're trying to set this up for quite some time, but uh, we finally got him. He is writer extraordinaire and equally as an extraordinary podcaster, voice of the people of I cemented him from Raptors Republic, Samson Folk. How are you, brother? Doing good. Hanging in. Uh, excited to chop it up, talk some hoops. Usually we're too busy playing. So good to, to put it on wax, I suppose. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a long time coming. It's been a while since we uh we got together on this platform. I know you brought me on Route to the Republic, but that's because I'm not doing much, so I'm always available. <laughs> I'm just bugging. I'm just bugging. No, it, it it just it's it's funny how how life sometimes happens. You know, it's always tough to schedule the things that you really enjoy, but then when you have the time, you put your all into it. It's full of passion, full of love, and you just kind of make up for the lost time. You know. I always love yeah. how it all comes to excuse me how it all comes together, uh, brother. Let's let's talk Raptors, man. What a season it has been. I guess we can, you know, dub this pod a uh, the quarter check in of the season. I know we're we're one game short, but it's been a roller coaster ride of a season. I know you've talked about it multiple multiple times, and I have as well. This season has been interesting. I think it would be the nicest way to put it. I think that we all expected them to struggle out the gate with a new coach, new roles, new players. But I think we're all surprised that it has been this ugly up until this point. Uh, what, what's your early thoughts on the season with the Raptors currently sitting at 10 and 14? I think that the Raptors, you know, I wrote that we're what, I guess, three games away from being a third of the way through the season. I believe since they're 10 and 14. Now we're looking at a team that is losing more than I thought they would. And it's because they're underperforming their defensive talent. Uh, the way they play defense, I think has been up to expectation as far as like the schemes, what they try to do on a possession to possession basis. And then the offense, I feel like not, not to toot my own horn really too much, but I feel like they are playing almost the exact way I described coming into the season, what they would succeed at and the clear limitations they have. Baked into all that, though, is that Scotty Barnes is better than I would have guessed, and I thought he was going to be good. I thought there was a leap coming, but he's better than that leap. His shooting, I just wrote a piece about it. It's been insane. He is tied with OG Ananobi at 39.4% for the best shooter on the Raptors. He's taking over five threes a game. He's hitting over 40% above the break. And for anybody who doesn't really know the court geometry, let's say, above the break threes are harder to hit. They're more important for the health of an offense. And if you can hit above the break threes, it creates a branching opportunity for you to make more dangerous decisions as like an on-ball guy going forward. It's way more important than corner threes. Not to be down on Pascal or anything, but Pascal's big jump in 2018-19 as a jump shooter, a lot of that was him hitting threes out of the corner. Defenses feel pretty good about taking away corner threes. Most of them can do it. It's harder to manufacture those. 
There's a lot of space above the break if you can hit those. There's a lot of opportunities to attack middle, play make to both sides of the floor when you come from the top. When you're playmaking out of the corner, shooting out of the corner, you have less options. It's a less important shot. Scotty can't hit the pull-up three at like the star level, but he's hitting the static above the break three, like as good as Danilo Gallinari during Gallinari's like peak years. That's nuts. That's insanity. So the Raptors have struggled at a great many things that they were supposed to struggle at. Uh, struggled at defense, which they weren't supposed to struggle at. And Scotty has been coasting along, dominating from above the break as a shooter, which was not supposed to happen, but which is happening. And I think that's the story of the season so far, mostly. Yeah, absolutely. And just to piggyback on that point, you know, 30 point, uh, 32% on pull-up threes for Scotty, which is, I didn't see that coming. 39% from three also didn't see that coming. But And over over one attempt a game, too, like a healthy amount of pull-ups. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, for me, the difference with Scotty this season is confidence. He's confident in everything that he's doing. I think in year two, there was some hesitation. Uh, I definitely feel that there was some misuse in his role, maybe not having a role for him. And he's not waiting for those opportunities anymore. He's taking them. Sometimes he's saying, okay, guys, get on my back. Let's go for a ride. You know, we're going to get this started as an initiator, playmaker, as a scorer, as a defender. I think they really prioritize Scotty's success this season. And hearing from you and the other great people that cover the Raptors, he's put in a lot of work this offseason. And now you're seeing the benefits of that. And he's being rewarded for his hard work. And I think that has been a huge, huge positive outside of, you know, a lot of the negatives this season. But for me, the the area of concern is the defense. This is a team that has been built to be a great defensive team with the type of players that they've drafted, sign, the athleticism, the length. This is what Masai envisioned. And defense is a mentality. It's an approach. And I think with this team, with the limitations that they have, the margin of error is very, very slim. And if they don't have it defensively and they already struggle offensively, it's going to be a difficult night if they're not bought in. And for me, it's it's a transition defense. It's so up and down. It's very situational. They take plays off. And listen, they're professional athletes. They're getting paid millions of dollars. They can do what they want. They could take plays off, and then they'll find ways to make it up. But it just seems that the Raptors are doing it at critical moments, and it's just creating easy advantages for for the opposition more times than not. And more particularly in first quarters, I think for me that is another another area of concern for me this season is they're just coming out flat right off the bat, and they're playing catch-up for the remainder of the game. Sometimes they're successful. We saw great comebacks against Washington, Spurs. But if you're a team that have these limitations, you cannot afford to play like that. Do you kind of see the same thing from game to game or am I just creating something out of nothing here? No, I think that's I think that's accurate. The Raptors, you know, you talked about a margin for error. You mean that for the whole game, like both sides of the floor, they're supposed to be a defense that has a lot of margin for error with their size and their talent. And quite frankly, they should be able to play kind of like a diverse set of schemes. 
They should be able to do quite a few different things. We've seen Precious Achua close games. We've seen Jakob Pertl close games. We've seen it from a couple other guys too at that num- at that five position, depending on who they're toggling in and out of like three and four or two and one. And this is a Raptors team that should be able to not only play a bunch of different ways, but succeed a bunch of different ways. And quite frankly, they haven't. And it's been a stop and go for them because they started the season really strong defensively grinding out games their offense was horrific and their offense has been top half of the league over the past 10 games I think I think they're 21st overall now it's obviously not great 21st like it's nothing (laughs) to write home about but on top of that their defense is like in the bottom half of the league now this defense with Jakob Pertl, Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Dennis Schroeder, Precious Achua like what the hell is happening here right and and even guys like Chris Boucher who have been positive defenders in years past. There there's some guys who are positive defenders no matter what, and there's some guys who are positive defenders when the team context is healthy defensively. That would be like a Chris Boucher, for example. Um, maybe Pascal Siakam on his max contract will be more so that type of defender as he's waxed and waned a little bit there. And and even with Scotty Barnes making a big step as a playmaker underperforming your talent on that end is a huge red flag. And the fact that the Raptors, you bring, you brought up the the transition defense in some games, it was really good, but they are bo- the bottom half of the league. As far as like transition defense, um, they don't even play transition defense that often. They do a decent job of staying out of it, but when they do play it, they give up a lot of points, bottom third. These guys are messy. They're sloppy. Where's the passion? Where's the aggression? Like, it's been disappointing. And for a time, it was things like Jakob Pertl not being able to set the edge. The Raptors still trying to figure out what height they want to play him at in drop or up to touch in certain matchups. Feels like they've got a better feel for that lately. But then also, the point of attack defense has really fallen off, and Dennis Schroeder his performances have been much worse lately than they were at the start of the season. Pascal Siakam, a little bit less resistant now than he was at the start of the season above the break, getting shifted a little bit easier. Even OG Ananobi is getting beaten matchups that we don't typically see. And Scotty Barnes, the type of defense and the, I guess, the role he was playing in at the start of the season has been toggled and switched a little bit more often in these past however many games to where he's more susceptible and above the break more often. And the Raptors are losing their shell more often, and that means they're breaking down, giving up open jumpers, and then we see games where they just hemorrhage you know, points from downtown. It's been tough, man. Uh, they need to be better, particularly at the point of attack. And whether they are able to do that through pre-rotation, off-ball, or whether their guys kind of stick a little bit more. I don't know which one's going to happen, but one of them has to. You said a, you said a lot there. And no, no, and I, and I mean that respectfully, of course. But you touched on a lot of things. And I'm trying to figure out a way to kind of circumvent that. Do you feel like there's a lack of role definition? I know there's there's more of a democracy than a than a hierarchy going on with this team. But do you feel like this team is lacking role definition and is contributing to some of the struggles? I know definitely offensively that's the case, but do you feel that maybe the way that they're being set up defensively? Because one one thing that Coach Darko said that 
sold me on him is that they were going to play more man-to-man defense. But lately you've been seeing them going more zone two, three kind of a, of a zone man type of defense. And whenever you go into a zone, it's because you really don't trust them defensively. And for all the reasons that you, that you highlighted, maybe that's the reason why that is the case, but they go zone and they give up a lot of buckets. You saw against the Atlanta game, they got past Dennis or whoever was at the point of attack and they were able to get an open jump shot in the middle or a floater or, or an easy lay right at the basket. How can they curtail that? So when a team has the length that the Raptors do, typically what you're going to try to do is allow your team to catch up on the back end of things if you want to be able to throw more resistance at the front end. That's why we see more mobile bigs. They don't play drop because they don't. you don't have to worry about containing. You don't have to worry about setting the edge. They'll play hedge and recover because you can – Let's say you're playing hedge and recover and a guy steps out to make sure that the ball handler has to use an escape dribble in the pick and roll. You can bring a guy over from the weak side to tag the guy short rolling. And then you can force the ball handler to try and make a skip to the opposite corner. If you have length, if you have speed, you can catch up and have a controlled closeout to that skip pass. Unless it's like Luca or LeBron making it, then those guys make it quicker. They make it more efficient. These are why stars are stars. But most teams, if they have the athleticism, they can kind of load up at the point of attack, send multiple defenders, and then catch up at the back end. The Raptors, we see them with Precious Achua a lot. They'll just switch. And he was really the key defensively. Our uh, mutual friend S did a video breaking down how Precious kind of flipped the switch in that game defensively on Steve Dangle Podcast Network for anybody who wants to watch that. Um... Precious really helped the Raptors flip things defensively through switching. And that meant that like when they run the pick and roll, suddenly they can stop that action, reset into isolation or bring it back around to another pick and roll, move them into the back end of the shot clock. Um, What the Raptors do a lot of with particularly that starting lineup where it's not scoring well enough to justify the fact that it's not good enough defensively is they're playing Jakob kind of low. Dennis isn't doing a good enough job navigating screens he's also trying to ice sometimes and getting left out to dry hanging behind both players creating a lot of two-on-one actions and then also like again it depends on the matchup but Yako having a tough time splitting the difference between the two guys and the Raptors also being kind of hesitant to tag rollers is is something that we saw a lot of against the the Hawks and whether that's a strong side or a weak side tag maybe it's dependent you know I haven't talked to Darko about this maybe it's dependent on who they're pulling off of from which corner but you just have to be able to pre-rotate from elsewhere on the court basically that's fundamentally what it is and you have to be able to catch up and you see teams like the Knicks for example who have good defenses and have had them for a while um, successfully played a lot of minutes they play defense, they play deep, they're able to manage it. They pre-rotate a ton because they have a lot of the same point of attack struggles that the Raptors do, but they do it by throwing bodies at the point of attack, rotating hard elsewhere and trusting their size on the inside. And the Raptors, their rotations are not as hard. Their rotations are not as crisp. And like as tough as it is to say, when the team is working well, 
the difference is kind of like you can see guys really give a shit about getting to their spot and doing so in a way that allows the next guy up to get to his spot too. Um, they don't work like a cohesive defensive unit very often. For points in time, they do. During some stretches of the game, they do. But we see a lot of breakdowns in the back end of coverage, and uh, that's rotational stuff. That's attention to detail, and that's effort. And part of that might be that Darko is not instilling, you know, where am I leading this guy when we're in broken when we're dealing with a broken play, where am I trying to force ball handlers? So everybody knows when we're in rotation, where's the spot to be if it's one or three guys down the line. And then also it's just the players, um, a lack of effort at times. Those are the two biggest things. Yeah, definitely. And I think you saw that in the last eight minutes against the Atlanta Hawks in the fourth quarter where they buckled down two massive blocks and drop coverage from Jakob Pertl. You saw them. They were rotating. They were aggressive. And they basically funneled uh, the player right into, or Trey Young in particular, right into Jakob's space. And it led to a massive posterizing dunk for OG and a nice reverse lay for Scotty Barnes for an N1 finish. And it's like, why are you waiting at the critical moments to, to commit to that side of the ball? Like, this is your identity. You're supposed to be this team. And for me as a fan and, and somebody as uh, for covering this team, and I'm sure for you as well, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because we have the guys that can play up to that level that you're alluding to. And we're just not seeing it on a consistent basis. Maybe it's coaching. Maybe it's the players. Maybe frustration with some losing and the way that they're losing has a part to play in that. But if this is your identity and this is who, who you are, it's inexcusable. Effort and energy as a defensive-minded team are crucial to your success. And anything short that, short of that, you're doing yourself and the team a huge disservice. And I don't know if they can afford to do this. And I don't I don't think it's, it's sustainable if they, this is the mentality for the great players that we have on this team. It's, uh, it's disappointing, you know, there to was, see this. There's one path to above 500 basketball in elite defense. There's one path to above 44 wins, elite defense with an offense that overachieves. They aren't currently doing either. You know, uh, this team, when it was Darko's introductory press conference, I asked the question about defense and he was saying like, don't worry, we're going to have a good defense. These are the things we want to take away. This is what we want to do. And I'm sure he like, he definitely did not envision, you know, the 18th overall ranked defense, certainly, because he looked at his roster and said, these guys can definitely play. He saw a stretch towards the end of the season after they got Jakob. Certainly, he did the film work and saw these guys play defense. These guys locked down for a stretch of time. And he probably didn't view Fred Van Vliet as essential. He probably viewed Dennis Schroeder, a guy he's, you know, he knows quite well as somebody who can step in and certainly provide like point of attack defense in that role. And the Raptors as a whole are underperforming. You're going to have breakdowns. You're playing other NBA players, wizards with the basketball. They shoot from everywhere. They're elite athletes. They're going to get into the lane. They're going to beat you off the dribble. What do you do afterwards to like triage, stop the bleeding? What are you doing? Uh, it's been less than impressive so far. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. And 
I guess to segue into the next question as equally unimpressive is the starting lineup. (laughs) They have not won a ton of minutes uh, and we continue to see the same kind of mistakes, the same kind of uh, poor ball movement with the exception of the Atlanta Hawks game where they were able to get 39 assists. The ball movement was crisp, but at times we see a lot of isolation basketball, a lot of times where the ball sticks in Dennis's hand and it's clear that Darko wants to run the offense through the point guard. I think we need to make our peace with that. Dennis is his guy and this is the way it's going to go, but it has not been a recipe for success as of late. And you and I have talked about this. We've been a huge, huge fan of tweaking the lineup. We definitely thought that Gary was supposed to start just for necessities to address some of the limitations, address the spacing that we lack at times offensively. But Darko said that he wants to give this team a game or two. So we're at the game two of those two games, and we're currently sitting at 10 and 14. You can quickly fall behind in this league. And at almost 25 games in, and you're still kind of figuring things out, it's kind of concerning. Where do you stand on that? Do you think it's time for change, or are you willing to give this team, or this this lineup, I should say more specifically, given the way that they've played against Atlanta, given the way that OG, Pascal, and Scotty that have been playing great basketball as of late, are you willing to give a little bit more leeway, or is it time for a change? I think it behooves the Raptors to change this at some point, but just some stats for the listeners. So the highest usage lineup in the NBA is Fred Van Vliet, Jalen Green, Dylan Brooks, Jabari Smith, and Alperin Shangun. They are plus 11.5 points per 100 possessions. Uh, It's 71st percentile lineup. You get a lot of minutes. You win a lot of minutes. That's really good. 677 possessions. That They've won their minutes by like, 85 points just quick math it's probably not 85 but around there right they've won a ton of minutes heaps and the raptors are this have the second highest usage lineup in the nba dennis og scotty pascal Jakob, minus 3.7 points per 100 possessions among the 11 highest usage lineups in the nba that is the worst uh that's not good at all if you're playing a lineup a lot, you want to win those minutes. The difference between the Rockets' best lineup or their highest usage lineup and the Raptors' highest usage lineup is basically you're looking at the difference between their record because that's so many points to give up in those possessions, in those minutes. And the Raptors, I thought before the season, not because Gary Trent Jr. is a life-changing guard, not because he's the best of the best, but because I thought that his skill set fit better to complement a wing-initiated offense. I thought that that was the way the Raptors were going to go. It turns out that the Raptors are running a guard-initiated offense and a big-initiated offense through Jakob and Dennis Schroeder as these hubs, and they're asking their wings to eat off of that. And... I think it makes more sense for this offense to be more wing-oriented. I think it makes more sense for this offense to lean more so into the skill sets on the roster. This is what Greg Popovich talked about when he got DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge. They changed from the beautiful game Spurs to 
adhering to LaMarcus and DeMar DeRozan. They went from a team that didn't shoot very many mid-range jumpers to a team that did. And that doesn't mean that Greg Popovich thinks that that team was better than the beautiful game Spurs. It means that he was coaching the team that he had. And I think that as far as the offensive approach, Darko hasn't necessarily been coaching the team he has. The Raptors, if you move this offense, if you go from Fred Van Vliet, all of his possessions, his touch time, his touches, his dribbles per touch, all that kind of stuff, if you just move that into the hands of Dennis Schroeder, you're going to get worse offensively. Guess what? That's actually how the approach has been. It's been different as far as the decisions they make. They do different things, but relatively they're getting the same amount of touches, doing a lot of similar things. You see the Fred, like this lineup, if you swap out Dennis Schroeder for Fred Van Vliet towards the end of last season, was 98th percentile. The The difference is staggering between swapping out Dennis and Fred. And so you're paying a guy a lot less money to come in and try and helm a lineup. And you also have OG, who is worth a lot more than what he's getting paid. You have Scotty Barnes in the middle of an all-star leap. You have Pascal Siakam, who, if the three-point shot comes around, I think he's going to give you, like, all-star impact. And the three-point shot is coming around. He's finally north of 25%. You have a lot of talent on the wings. You're not running offense through there. And you have two wings who, at the very least, like, Scotty can give you 25 and 5. Pascal has given you 24, 8, and 6 in the past year. And most of the, the touches are running through Dennis Schroeder. And that's tough. That's like, I know you want to run an offense. I know you want to get these looks. I know you want to do all these kind of things. You want to move through your first set from 17 to 14 seconds. You want to move through your second set from 14 to 11, and you want to break the defense down in one of those two things. And if not, you go to 11 and below, shot makers, make it happen. But if you don't create advantages in these sets because your ball handler isn't like a star guard, then it behooves you to maybe give more of those early looks to guys who do create advantages so you can break down the defense more often and give guys time to play against a rotating defense with more time on the shot clock. It's, uh, I expect it to change at some point. It did look good against Atlanta at the very least, but that's, I, again, I said a lot of things there, so my bad. No, 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 it was perfect. No, it it's small sample size to say, okay, you, these guys are good. You know, if you're using two games as a measuring stick, to use the Atlanta game as a measuring stick, probably not what you want to be doing because Atlanta's not very good defensively. We, we we knew that going in. I think the game went kind of the way that we expected it to go. A bit of a track meet, a lot of lead changes, a lot of defensive breakdowns, but both teams weren't playing well defensively anyways. It was really the Raptors in, in the fourth quarter that really locked down and it made the difference in the game. To ask them to do that for 48 minutes is is unrealistic. They're not machines. They're humans. They're gonna there's gonna be breakdowns, but it cannot be all game long. It you have to get that pass 50%, maybe even 75%. You're playing great defense for the game in order for you to have a chance to win the game. But you said it. I think the offense running with Schroeder and Yak in the pick and roll, those are two guys that aren't big threats offensively and you see a lot of teams 
going below the zone or uh, going below the screen and daring Dennis to shoot. And he takes the bait. He's not a great three-point shooter. I think he's around 32% right now, maybe 33%, but he's a career 34% three-point shooter. And let's call it what it is. Dennis Schroeder is a backup point guard in a starting role. I don't think he's starting on a lot of teams this season. Maybe there's a few of them, but he's also been better than advertised. The issue is, is balancing the offense and leaning into your strengths, which is, as you said, the wing initiators and a Pascal and then Scotty. Scotty is one of the best passers in the game, bar none. You made a, you did a tremendous piece, lots of film, folks. If you have not checked it out, do yourself a favor. He is a wizard with the basketball, and he's a willing passer, and so is Pascal. And that's what really frustrates me is that you have two willing passers, two guys that are capable to do damage from anywhere on the court. And we're seeing Pascal, if he could get that corner three going, he's going to be a threat anywhere on the floor as well. And he's and you see him putting it all together now. Why wouldn't you want the ball in their hands? It, it's really frustrating to see because you don't have to be a purist to figure it out. Put the ball in Pascal's hand, and we've seen it. You put it in his hands, great things happen. Scotty, whether he gets the ball or not, great things are happening. And you can even credit OG. It's not always pretty, but he's even finding success, attacking, punching the gaps, and finishing above the rim or at the rim. I think what's really impressive, just on that note, OG doesn't generate a lot of free throw opportunities, and he bangs with the best of them in the paint. I I, I just find that strange that it, it doesn't create a lot of free throw opportunities for him. Maybe that'll change. But if he's finishing or he's posterizing dudes, you'll live with the results, right? But I think change is necessary right now. I, I, I really, really do. Defenses are not scared with the Dennis Yak pick and roll. Yes, it looked great against the Hawks, but that's not enough for me. And I think that having Gary in the lineup, while he's not the best of the best, but he's the best of what we got right now and especially what he can offer, especially for an offense that's struggling, he can pop off for 20 and 30 at any given moment. And I think for for me, what's so discouraging is that he hasn't played well enough to force Darko's hand. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see this lineup more often than not. Um, I don't know. How soon do you do you think that we can probably see the ball in Pascal and Scotty's hands? Yeah, it's and to your to your point about OG, it's because he's a one speed player. You know, that's why he can't get to the line very often. Yeah, that's as true. Physically, as physically <laughs> imposing as he is. If you allow defenses to time you up and you can and you never change that timing, you're not going to put them in a position where they're fouling you that often. Um, as far as shifting the offense more into Pascal and Scotty's hands, I think it is has happened slowly. Like Pascal, he gets 62 touches per game. It's been around 62 for like 15 games. I think Pascal's role in the offense is pretty static right now. Um, I think Scotty is like 70, I think maybe like close to like 75, uh, 76. Dennis's is close to 80. Everybody else is below Pascal. Um, It's shifting. And I know if people go to like NBA.com slash stats, you'll see that Jakob Pertl is one of the highest points per possession pick and roll players in the NBA, if not the highest. That's only when he takes the shot. 
Like, I he's a great finisher. That's and that is reflected in the pick and roll stats. But that is half a statistic that you're looking at. Like, that's only when Jakob gets the pass and takes the shot. So, if you're judging statistics by like, oh, you know, basically who shoots the best percentage when they get the ball, great. But the pick and roll is a play that is typically run for the ball handler. The pick and roll is a play where you don't get it to the roller every time. And what is happening in all of those possessions where it's not the highest points per possession in the NBA, like Jakob finishing, it's Dennis on ball, teams loading up, tagging Jakob, teams giving a buffer to Dennis because they're okay with him kind of playing around in space, maybe taking a shot. All those possessions where nothing happens and they have to go to something else, those are the things that are not baked into these statistics. And I've seen like feedback from people saying, you know, get Jakob more of the ball because he shoots such a high percentage. Jakob is not responsible for his own creation. You, you can't control Jakob's volume without an elite pick and roll player. If you have an elite pick and roll player to bring two to the ball, then you can get Jakob the ball more. But until you do, Jakob, his volume is going to be dictated by how many times you can get Jakob's defender to rotate off of him, get the ball to Jakob for an easy finish at the rim. That isn't up to Jakob. That is up to the creators on the team. And the creators on the team who most often break down the defense is Pascal in the half court. Pascal by a wide margin. And then Scotty. And then Dennis. And then OG. And I hope that Man, like I really hope that the Raptors start to move more of these synergistic two-man stuff with Scotty and Pascal. I really hope they start to give those guys a few more possessions in the pick and roll. Play around with what that looks like at the point of attack. And also are mindful of doing it on second side. I think Scotty has a really great knack for attacking from the second side. Attacking, you know, moving defenses, making passing reads. I just wish that the offense was structured a little bit more towards those things in mind. And currently, they they do have those things in mind, but they're asking Dennis to take the lead possession. And I don't think it means that much when Dennis is taking the lead possessions. Maybe the offense looks a little bit quicker. Maybe they get a few more passes up on the leaderboard for the number three team in passes or something like that. But I think it just makes the most sense even if it's a little bit slower working through Siakam and Barnes, I think it makes sense to go slower and more potent than it does quicker and more feckless, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's a perfect way to to say it. No, I, I agree. I think right now your two best players are, I don't, well, I don't think I know your two best players are Pascal and Scotty. The ball should be in their hands, bar none. And if you really look at the way that this team is constructed, especially with the guys coming off the bench, Dennis will unlock something for those guys coming off the bench. They could run a more aggressive style. They can get out and transition more. It really fits the way that they are trying to play with this starting lineup. I think it's more fit for the guys coming off the bench, especially with the shooters as well getting out in transition, hitting those transition threes would be a huge, huge benefit and a huge boost for those guys and a confidence builder, I think. I, that's where I currently stand with with that. But one thing that ha- one positive that has come out of the starting lineup as of late is 
the way I've cemented them, the new big three for the Raptors with OG, Pascal, and Scotty. Over the last couple of games, they each have scored over 20 points. And what I love about their chemistry over the last couple of games is that they're looking for each other. If somebody has it going, they're feeding the hot the hot hand. And I really feel that the Raptors have strayed away from that multiple times this season. Whenever any anyone gets going, they stray away from them. And it costs them some games because when you're a team that has these offensive limitations and you got somebody going, you want to lead into that. You want to get ahead of what's coming down the pipeline, which is eventually cooling off, shots stop falling, and so on and so forth. But I think we have something special brewing right now. I think we've had it for quite some time, but I think right now we're seeing the the benefits of having those three guys. Are they going to be together at the end of this season? We don't know. Is it worth giving them a bigger role or bigger opportunities to see something beyond these two games? Absolutely. I don't think you have anything to lose right now. And because of all the problems that we've highlighted up until this point, there is no reason that you cannot lean into them. What what have you noticed about the play of those, or as they said, as I said, the new big three with OG Pascal and Scotty? Yeah, I think I wrote that piece about Pascal's shooting, and I think he's seven of eleven or seven of ten from three since that happened. There's a couple things that have stopped the big three from being as potent as they need to be. And I don't think a lot of it is tied to Scotty, to be quite honest with you. Scotty has limitations as a live ball creator, but Scotty is supposed to have the most limitations right now because he's the youngest and he gets paid the least by far. And the biggest problems so far with the big three is that Pascal can draw closeouts, but draws controlled closeouts because teams haven't feared his three. He has to shoot over some of them. He had like a five for 52 or four for 52 stretch from three. That is unbelievably bad. Um, He was for a time, the worst high volume three point shooter in the NBA, completely untenable. He's also the Raptors best on ball creator. He has been one of the best post-up players in all of the NBA. He's been like a wizard inside the arc shooting almost 60%. His offense has still been good despite being for a time, the worst three point shooter in the NBA. That's nuts. That's how good he's been inside the arc. But having teams with controlled closeouts hurts the offensive process because you shift the defense. They load up at the point of attack, let's say. The ball goes out out to Pascal. He has to be able to hit a three at at least a a modicum of like a a respectable semblance of three-point shooting. And if he can't, then the defense kind of gets to reset behind that controlled closeout. Pascal can probe and work himself into an an advantage again, but that's starting from zero. He can start from zero, but that's a problem. The three-point shot coming around is positive and is super positive for that big three, let's say. The other one is that OG Ananobi is getting advantaged closeouts. He's getting these big closeouts. And for a time, a long stretch of the season, not doing a good job of attacking the space that Pascal didn't get, but OG does get. He, over the past four or five games, has done a way better job of seeing how the defense is rotating in front of him, making laydowns, getting all the way to the rim, seeing if a guy is in front of him that I can still beat that guy to the glass and have a controlled finish. He is seeing defenders in front of him 
And similar to Scotty and Pascal, seeing that as like, that isn't going to stop my drive. That just makes me change it a little bit. And so Scotty, or sorry, OG taking that step as a guy who can drive more efficiently against tilted defenses makes that threesome more viable. And then finally, Scotty, the more Scotty creates, the more he bends it for other guys, the more he's able to move the ball on, work himself into offensive rebounding situations, put himself in the dunker spot as a make cuts or settle above the break where he's been hitting over 40% of his threes. Um, Scotty, it will take years before he's like a guy who's a whiz at the point of attack, creating off the bounce, getting into the teeth of the defense all the time. He has to work on his handle. He has to see different coverages, figure out what he wants to do over time. Of course, um, he has a long time to figure it out. But Pascal and OG cleaning up their own process. Well, let's say OG cleaning up process, Pascal cleaning up shot making really does make this more harmonious. And they help lift up Scotty's lack of creation in the half court because Scotty has been, you know, like the best finisher on the team, let's say. Uh, as far as like what he's asked to do, shot making, and being able to create more often for him to be a finisher and for them to finish off of what he creates, it makes it way more tenable. And OG and Pascal have really cleaned things up lately. Long answer again. Yeah, yeah, no, man, no, it's awesome. No, it, it's true. It's true. You, you're, you're seeing the shift. And I think for me, because of the offensive limitation that OG has, has, and has struggled to still piece it together. I think for me, it's the patience. I think at times before he would kind of rush his possessions or he would do a little bit too much dribbling. And I've always said that when OG has his mind made up and makes the simple move, he finds success more times than not. And you're seeing it. You're seeing it. He'll make one crossover, protect the ball, and just bludgeon his way through the defender and create an opportunity at the rim or create an opportunity in the paint. Um, you're you're also seeing him being a little bit more confident off the dribble. You saw him, I think it was Bogdanovich in the Atlanta game on the elbow. I think it was on the left side where he kind of sized him up and pulled up for that very awkward looking mid-range shot. But you love that he has the confidence to take that. And it's not always going to be pretty with OG, but it's going to be effective. And I think what you're seeing now is a shift in confidence. I think the shift in awareness, like you alluded to, is a huge contributor to that. Pascal hitting shots obviously creates space. It's going to create space for guys like OG, like Scotty to operate that may not have the cachet that he has offensively and creates easy opportunities. We know that when Pascal's cooking, he has that presence to attract double teams. And he's also a great passer. Is he the best passer? No, but he finds ways to create advantages when he is creating advantages for himself. And I think that's what we're also seeing as well, is that Pascal is now finding the balance between his offense and creating for others. And he's taking his opportunities when it's available, but also creating his advantages. And like you said, it's harmonious right now and it's clicking right now. Is it sustainable? We don't know. But I think if there is a shift, putting the ball in Scotty and Pascal's hands, I think we're going to see more of it. For me, the frustrating thing is that from game to game, you see these positives. And they don't try to replicate it. And they seem to be outthinking themselves at times. Are, are you kind of seeing the same thing? 
Yeah, it's a lot of it is based on defensive response, and the Raptors have to be more comfortable going to their counters. And there is like a a level of hard headedness in the NBA um, from coaches sometimes. Sometimes it's from players in their approach. And there's been a couple games that I think were winnable if Scotty and Pascal would have settled into the mid range. You want to keep playing, you want to keep working through the offense, but if the defense is going to consistently put you in the position where that's where the shot making is, guess what? The the teams who win in the NBA are governed by stars who hit shots that are available to them. It's also about breaking the defense open, making the defense do things they don't want to do. But if the defense is going to sit, you have to shoot over top of it. And most teams have shooters who can do that. There's been a couple games where the Raptors have been hesitant to go to counters and have tried to force things. And I think that finding finding the games where they can lean really hard into their offensive process, like against Atlanta, you can get off a lot of the high-low stuff because you can involve DeJounte Murray and Trey in a lot of those actions by using like Dennis Schroeder or Gary Trent Jr. as back screeners. You can make Trey Young make a decision as like, am I switching? If I switch, am I dead? If the guy who is covering like Pascal or OG or Scotty gets caught on the screen, is Trey Young going to drop out of the play and try and guard a lob? Like these are things they can go to and the Hawks are going to hemorrhage points on like those, those chin screens and slice screens and stuff like that. But there's some games where teams will switch across that stuff harmoniously. They'll be able to defend it and the Raptors have to be able to you know, create with a live dribble, not with their motion, not with their screening, which credit to Darko, they've been able to get more points out of that this season than in years past, but they have to be able to lean more into their live dribble creation. And, you know, you mentioned Pascal not being the greatest passer. He's not as good a passer as Scotty. And it's cool to think about those guys as like, when Pascal creates a really good advantage, you can see he does so with his dribble like probing, dragging the defense with a live dribble. And when Scotty, like you think about that in the half court, that no-look lob he threw to Pascal over the top of the rim, none of that was created with the dribble, but that was created with the pass. And to see that defenses, when they guard those guys, even though they have similar advantages and similar skill sets in some regard, they utilize them differently. That creates more errors in defensive response. So... I think that the Raptors can package more creative things around each of them. I think that there's more that they can go to. And I hope that they, I hope they have a stick to on offense that they haven't had on defense. And I hope both catch up on both sides of the floor. I think it's always one or the other with this team. It's either they're clicking offensively and defensively, not so much. And then vice versa. I think it's something that I've grown to accept with this team to expect perfection with this imperfect roster is unrealistic. Um, I think we're all saying the same thing at the end of the day is we've seen these guys at their best and we've seen them at their worst and everything in between, but they are a very talented bunch. And I think that for whatever reason, they have not leaned into their strengths uh, as yet. They haven't discovered the advantages like we're, we've been alluding to. And I think if I'm going to be critical of, coach Darko and uh, for a moment is that he hasn't created a lot of advantages for the players that need those advantages. I think 
putting players in the right position to be successful is crucial from game to game. And I think a part of it is how this front office has built this team is they're asking guys to extend beyond their abilities from game to game. And I think it's frustrating and I think it's unfair to ask them to go beyond what they're capable of doing. Not saying that they can't, not saying that they haven't worked on their game to address some of those limitations. But for example, to ask OG to be a shot creator with 10 seconds left and uh, on the shot clock is very unrealistic and very unfair. But I think that, and I know I keep referring to this game, but you saw those advantages being created in the Atlanta game. You also saw that the rotation shrinked a little bit went with the nine man rotation in I think one of the few times this season where the entire starting lineup was a positive in the plus minus, which is huge. But is that sustainable? A lot of things went right for them. They led that game in transition or in the fast break. I think it was 26 to 12. They shot over 50% from the field. They matched 18 threes with Atlanta. They missed about seven free throws that game. And we know free throws have been the Achilles heel for this team for quite some time. And you also seen, you also got to see the ball movement at 39 assists. You're not going to get that game to game. So the Raptors are going to have to try and find those advantages and keep it simple. I think you got something great going on right now over the last couple of games with OG, with Pascal and with Scotty lean into that. I think you've realized that maybe a 10 man rotation, not might might not be the recipe for success with this team. But I also said that within this time frame, you're really going to see what this team is made of, and you're really going to see a shift because as much as you want to develop, as much as vibes may or may not be back, wins and losses matter. These guys are going out there, busting their humps to win, and right now they're on the losing end. Pressure is starting to build. Are you kind of seeing that as well? Totally. Uh, what you brought up about the nine man versus 10 man, 10 man rotation, the, the Raptors, you know, I'll go to something that Lewis wrote recently. He said, there's an old parable about blind men and an elephant. They all grope at the thing as it passes. And then they all talk about what they felt. One thought it was a snake. One thought it was a wall, another, a tree trunk, another, a rope. They were all wrong. Of course. The Raptors used to be an elephant. Now they're just a snake and a wall, a tree trunk and a rope stitched together by the world's laziest tailor. So what he's getting at basically is that you have this big triumphant thing, an elephant, and now you're looking at it. And many people look at the Raptors, not as a team, but they look at them as a bunch of different parts, parts to be traded, parts that are overperforming, parts that are underperforming, parts, not a whole it is the coach's job to make it whole of course and i don't think darko has done a bad job of it but i think what you get at with the nine versus ten is that there are guys like Otto porter jr there are guys like jalen mcdaniels there are guys who have been signed at the end of the bench who aren't able to give consistent minutes even the guys who do get consistent minutes are not consistent within those minutes And this is a back, more than anything, the back end of a team is a representation 
of the decisions that are being made in the front office. The biggest difference a front office can make if you're in a glamour market, sign the big sexy free agent, of course. The biggest difference a, free, a front office can make in the draft, win the draftees, certainly. You know, get surplus value at a draft position continuously. The Raptors did that for like 10 years, right? And, and they were the best at it. But what else you can do is you can make the signings who give you surplus value. The Raptors, post-championship, have basically not been able to sign one player to surplus value. Dennis could be your argument, but other than that, they just haven't. You have a bunch of guys who are not able to give you surplus value, stacking up at the end of the bench, not being able to pr help provide wins, not being able to help provide structure, not being able to help provide spacing, and doing none of it consistently. You look at the snake, the wall, the trunk, whatever it is, if you consider it those guys to be Scotty, Pascal, OG, they all want to be an elephant together. But there's a lot of pieces that make that up. And the Raptors just haven't been able to build out, pad out the rest of the, the animal. They just haven't been able to do it, man. And the front office has significant failures. And people might say like, hey, if you think they didn't do well, name other guys and do it quickly. Give me the paycheck and I will start being able to outthink Masai Ujiri? Question mark. These guys, this is their job. If, if, and, and here's the thing too, you can critique them. People critique me and I get paid peanuts. People critique you and you get paid peanuts. You can critique Masai Ujiri for missing on stuff. And you can critique him for missing on free agents. You can critique him for missing on drafts, draft spots, 46 and 47, 45 and 46 if you want. You can critique for whatever. You're not being hateful. You can say this could have gone better. The point being, the Raptors haven't had a bunch of successful front office decisions since the championship happened. And there's some that have been fine. There's a big win in Scotty Barnes. But when you're not a glamour market, when you don't get the big guys to sign, when you're not winning trades, when you're losing them, in fact, it's going to all compile to where the back end of the team looks really dysfunctional. And it only works when a star is carrying them through minutes. And the Raptors are currently in between their Kyle Lowry and their LeBron James as far as a guy to just make the bench irrelevant. It's been tough, man. Uh, the team is in a really strange spot as far as the construction of it. And the construction of the team and the skill sets means that Darko is playing an offensive style that he believes in with players and it, to do so, he has to elevate players who aren't the best on the team to high possession counts to try and play the way he wants when ideally what happens is front office and coach are in a marriage where the front office tries to supply the coach with players that, you know, he can play the way he wants. Or prior to that, you hire a coach that can coach the team that is there. And there's been a lot of missed connections as far as that goes. It's been tough, man. Yeah, definitely. I think at the end of the day, a coach should be able to recognize what he has on the bench or what he has with his roster and find those advantages. Has Darko done a perfect job? No. Has he done a decent job? Yeah, I think I'm not, so. I'm not mad at him. I know no, a lot of no. people are upset at Darko, but 
I have no idea why I would be. No. I, it... I, if I can before the season, I'm a schlub. You're a schlub. We're all schlubs. If we can all look at this team and not just say like, oh, they're going to be a bad offense, but explain why they're probably going to be a bad offense because of skill sets, because of spacing, because of the actions that they'll have to run and might not succeed at. If we can look at that and say, yeah, it probably won't work. Why would we think a coach just gets to come in and make it work? Yep, that 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 is a question that I've I've asked and I've yet to get a, a, the right answer for. To ask Darko to make lemonade out of grapes is unfair. He can't he can't do it. He's as good as his team, and and I think that once we have that understanding, and I know we do, but once this fan base has that understanding, it's going to be less stressful. This team has talent, but this team also has limitations. And what I love about where this team is right now, even though it's a weird state and even though it's frustrating as a fan, it's now at the point where Masai and Bobby have to do something. They've kicked the can down the road. They've put aside tough decisions for a very long time. Now they have no choice. Two cornerstones are going to be free agents in OG and Pascal. You got a rising superstar. I truly believe that. Scotty is going to be a superstar once he pieces it all together. You're going to have to find a way to keep him happy and find a way for, for a team to be successful around him, whether you bring Pascal and OG back or one of them back, whether you train them or not. You've given away draft picks when you probably shouldn't have, and you've missed on the draft picks that you've had. Now we're, it's time to put up or shut up. Now we're going to see why you're getting paid the big bucks. We're going to see why you were once regarded as one of the best front offices in the, in the league. It, they have not been that for quite some time. I thought they're, and I feel, and I'm sure you feel the same way, their development of their young guys, the guys on the back end of the rotation, have not been fruitful. I think the guys that they do have, they've kind of plateaued at times, and they probably haven't reached their potential. But again, I think a lot of it has to do with the philosophy and asking them to do things that they're not capable of doing. I think that's something that Masai has. He's basically created his own mess. Asking guys to create when they when their strength is not a creator, you're going to have some problems. Asking guys to become a great three-point shooter when they can't shoot a lick is going to fall on your shoulders. It is now time to see what Masai is made of at this point. You've missed on free agents you've missed trade opportunities to make this team better show your worth that's where i'm at with this team you've been evaluating and evaluating at some point with all this evaluation you're gonna have to do something and i think we're reaching at that point i've said previously that they were entering a very important off season did they address all the needs no they didn't and i also said that this season is going to be a make or break for this team. Are they going to head to a rebuild? We don't know. Are they going to continue to patch this team along and see what they can get in this in the later half of this season? Time will tell. Bottom line is this. The roster has limitations. You got a bunch of talented guys. You got a bunch of pieces that aren't meshing. What are you going to do about it? That's where I'm at with this team. I think... The biggest problem with the how people saw the Raptors front office 
was people were reverse engineering their takes on development. And what I mean by that, this has been uh, something that's a nitpick of mine, is that Norman Powell, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, those are all massive, massive wins for the Raptors front office. And what people did was they focused too much on thinking that those players were putty instead of human beings. They thought, and I'm glad that this is changing with Scotty Barnes, nobody looks at Scotty Barnes' third-year leap, and nobody says, look what the Raptors did with Scotty. They said, well done picking Scotty. Scotty has made himself into this. But when it was OG, when it was Norm, when it was Fred, when it's Pascal, it's look what the team made them because they're from lower draft slots. No, these guys make themselves. And I'm glad that Nick and Dwayne were able to, in part, because they, because of the way that the team was built, they were able to provide, you know, roles that help them to kind of like leverage their skills to try new things out. That's an important part of it. But these guys improved, all of them, because of skill progression. Skill progression that the Raptors don't impart upon them. Skill progression that they have to have latent skills at the point of drafting that they're able to work on and develop. And the most important thing that the Raptors did was identify that those guys have latent skills, have skills that are translatable now, and that those guys, Pascal, Fred, OG, Norm, those are the guys who will work to develop them on their own with their trainers, with the team. Everybody thought, just because these guys found success under Toronto, that that was the common denominator. Toronto. The common denominator is the player. The player determines what the player becomes. And the team has to give them runway, of course. But everybody and their mom was thinking that, okay, the Raptors can turn anybody into anything. And they believed their own hype. There lied the issue, that right there. Pascal made Pascal. Scotty is making Scotty. Fred made Fred. Norm made Norm. OG made OG. It's the jobs team to help navigate this and help supplement them with opportunities. But if Norm becomes one of the best shooters and bench scorers over like a six-year span in the NBA, is that because the Raptors like patted him on the back and said, here, let's show you how to play basketball? No. Like, it's, it's paternalistic crap, dude. And so the Raptors and everybody thinking, oh, because players became good, that it's the, Ra- it's the Raptors who did it. It's a vaunted developmental process. You can have a good developmental process, of course. But the players are the ones who determine it. The players determine where this thing goes. And the players determine their own progression. And then when the Raptors, everyone is saying, why can't they turn guys into good stuff anymore? They were never turning guys into good stuff before. It was the players doing it themselves. They have to supplement it, but everybody overcorrected way too hard into thinking players were putty and that the Raptors had a magic touch. The magic touch is finding the player and the player being able to do something about it in the future. It isn't that you can just make anyone into anything just because you say you're good at making something. It's been an absurdity for some time. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. I will give them some credit, though. I think we're witnessing a shift in philosophy with the 
selection of Grady Dick. I, I, I'm stopping myself from saying the Grady Dick pick because I just don't like the way it sounds. <laughs> but the selection the of Grady, Grady Dick, Dick selection. <laughs> yes, the Grady Dick selection. Yes. Um, I think they're recognizing that they've been stagnant for too long. The idea of getting athletic wings with offensive limitations is costing them now. That having somebody like Grady, somebody that is a great shooter, it has not been a perfect season. It has not lived up to our expectations. But is he going to be fine? Absolutely. If I thought that this rookie, this 19-year-old rookie was going to be the savior of this team, I need to check myself. Because anyone that thought that, or even if Masai and company thought that Grady Dick was going to be a solution to a lot of their problems, that's right. an ir- irresponsible approach and a lot of pressure on a rookie. I think that with that selection, you've now understood that we need offensive power to stay in this league. You need shooting, that the guys around you need shooting. And I know they've made attempts with that, with the signing of Jalen McDaniels and Otto Porter. It has not worked out. But I'm willing to give them a little bit of leeway in terms of them seeing that there's an issue and making attempts to fix that issue. So we'll see how that all plays out. And, you know, we're rounding the end of of this pod. And I know how much you love rumors. I know how much you love addressing trade talk. So I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. Jake Fisher put out an article saying that it appears that the Toronto Raptors are going to target Keegan Murray and one of OG or Pascal might be part of the deal. Tis the season. December 15th is right around the corner. I love Keegan Murray. Am I willing to give up Pascal and OG for Keegan Murray? I have to see what else is coming in the deal. But I am willing to entertain the idea. But do you like the fit of a Keegan Murray on this team? And is there a guy, and I know there's one that we have both talked about and Buddy Heald being in the Raptors, but is there another guy where you can see that the Raptors might have an interest in going after to help this team? I think that Keegan Murray is the best possible prospect that the Raptors can get in the whole league, given the teams that are interested, given what teams are willing to pay. I think that Keegan Murray is the blue chip guy that the Raptors will be able to target. I like Nemhard a lot. I think Nemhard is a guy who will give you surplus value over this contract and over the next one. I think he pairs really well with Scotty. I think his point of attack stuff is great. Um, Keegan Murray, his defense has rocketed up this past season. He's not shooting as well as people would hope, but he can shoot. That much is known. And I think he also is like a terrific fit next to Scotty. I think that the Kings are going to really, like as much as Jake Fisher, and I'm glad that Raptor fans are back to trusting a Jake Fisher rumor instead of, you know, <laughs> lobbing in just God. They had a tough time with him for about yeah, a year. Definitely. Um, I couldn't believe that. Anyway, um, I think that Keegan Murray is the best player mixing now and the future that the Raptors can get in any negotiation. Maybe last season, I don't know, maybe if Oklahoma 
didn't hit as much on Chet, but they wanted to take this step this year, you could try and pry like J-Dub or something like that. And I think J-Dub is one of those those stars of the future. Even though he's next to Shea, like that's what the Raptors have to be able to do or try to do with this with one of these trades. Find not necessarily the next Halliburton, but find the player who is currently underperforming and can give you can start to approach all-star impact at some point while he's under contract with the Raptors. This is what happened with the Kyle Lowry trade. You know, Zach Lowe did that right up on it years and years ago where he said, I talked to the Raptors, and the Raptors at that time told Brian Colangelo that Kyle Lowry is a top 10 point guard hiding in plain sight. Turns out he was a top four point guard in the NBA over his time with the Raptors hiding in plain sight. He was better than the people who were high on him thought he was. The Raptors, pro scouts, prospect scouts, whatever the process is, those guys need to come together, collaborate on something, and figure out who the players are that they can target for this kind of stuff. I think Keegan Murray is one of those guys. I think Andrew Nembhard is to a lesser degree. And I just, you have to make sure that, I know people just want stuff coming back in the deal, but whatever deal they do make, since Scotty's about to head into max extension land, and just because people want to do like, just because the fans want Scotty to have like a 44% usage rate and they just want like Scotty to like have the ball and for like just clear out and have Scotty do everything. Scotty does not want that. Scotty wants to play with good players. Scotty wants to win games. I, I'll tell you this much. If the Raptors are a terrible team for the next three years and Scotty is averaging like 28, 8 and 8 and they lose games. He'll be like, wow, this has been really great for me to buff my stats and sign elsewhere because you guys won't build a good team around me. It is imperative that the Raptors bring someone back in one of these deals that can not only help Scotty now, but in the future, and hopefully in addition to that, get a little bit more, um, maybe, maybe another prospect, maybe draft capital, whatever it is. Um, Keegan Murray is one of those guys. Um, the Nemhard healed structure, that's pretty good. And there's like a Golden State thing that people are talking about. Some people like Bufkin and um, our, our dear friend Adrian Griffin Jr. I don't know. But yeah, the Raptors, they have to thread the needle on this one. Yeah, And I like Keegan. I do. Yeah, definitely. I'm a huge fan of Keegan Murray. And I think from a King's perspective, if I'm speaking objectively, they're missing that additional piece uh og and pascal can definitely fill that void i'm with you i think any deal that you do right now is crucial to scotty's success you have to find complementary pieces because if you're going to get rid of one of your cornerstones that means scotty is becoming the cornerstone and you have to put him in a position to be successful. He's becoming the lodestone. Yeah, really, really, truly, definitely. Um, I, I love the idea of having Keegan Murray alongside of him. Uh, the Andrew Nemhard, Buddy Heald structure, love that. Um, I've loved the idea of having Terry Rozier. I thought his impact as a shot-creating guard would be awesome. I know Mac and I... Mac initiated the idea. He planted the seed, and now it's grown, and now I'm I'm bought in. But it's just that contract is not very appealing. I'm going to throw in a name that I think is going to be one of those guards, has that 
J-Dub effect. Emmanuel quickly. I think he's kind of fallen out of favor with the Knicks a little bit. I don't know why. He's having a great season. I know. I think he's hurt right now, but he's averaging 15 points on 43% shooting, a couple of rebounds, a couple of assists. It's not his game. He's just a bucket getter. And for a team that needs buckets, he fits the bill. He's shooting 37% from three, 90% at the free throw line. Sounds perfect for the Raptors to go after him. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be a high price tag. I know last season it was definitely low. They could have gotten him for a couple of draft picks, but we all know how the Raptors like to use their draft picks. They only like to give them to the Magic and to the Spurs. But maybe they'll reconsider and give something to the Knicks. How do you like the fit of, or at least the idea of having an Emmanuel quickly here? I think quickly you can kind of mine... You can think back to all the the thought experiments everyone did when Grady got here. And again, Grady was 19 when he was drafted. He just turned 20. He's had a tough start to his season. He has time. He's a young kid. Like, let him put some weight on. Let him get used to the speed of the game. Let him get to, used to the new size of the court, all that kind of stuff. We'll revisit Grady once he's more comfortable. But... Emmanuel quickly is a guy who can work in a lot of those two-man actions with Scotty now and in the future. He's a guy who, for the Raptors who are at the bottom of the league in pull-up threes, uh, the Raptors who have some shooting on the roster but not diverse shooting skill sets, like we're over the moon about Scotty hitting, you know, taking more than one pull-up three a game but making less than one pull-up three a game. It's like he's making one every two and a half games or something. That's good for his progression because Scotty is doing so much else, but the Raptors have like no pull-up shooting on the roster. Pull-up shooting bends defense is like crazy in the NBA. It is, it is, it's like fire from Prometheus. It is from whence all live dribble creation comes. It's how you bend defenses and Emmanuel quickly in spades, quite frankly, like he'll pull. And I love that about him. And he's also a guy who has fit into um, good defensive lineups with the Knicks. He's a guy who has been the head of extremely fun Knicks bench lineups. He's carried less than talented players before with his offensive production. He makes sense to me as a buy low guy. If you can buy low, um, I'm not sure why the Knicks have been at odds with him. Maybe it's a role thing, but I, if you get quickly in, I don't know if the Knicks, the Knicks aren't trading for Pascal. Maybe the Knicks would trade for OG. I don't know if that's if people would be comfortable with OG and quickly as far as like a structure of a deal, but just quickly in a vacuum on the Raptors. I love that. I think he's a great player. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's very strange because normally Kentucky guards have a lot of favor, right? And it's it's strange because he he's a bucket getter. I think he brings an energy every time he's on the floor. Um, I think he's able to be one of those guys to make something out of nothing with something that the Raptors lack at times. And I love his aggression offensively. I think at times we have hesitation on that front and love him or hate him. And I know there's more fans that hate him than love him at this point, but Fred Van Vliet, that's what I loved about him. No shot was a bad shot. And he took shots that, uh, that other guys were hesitant to take. Was it always fruitful? No. Was it always a positive? No. Did he take some difficult shots? Absolutely. But 
if you're going to have an impact on the game, you cannot be timid. You have to be able to shoot the basketball. You have to be able to shoot and or at least have the idea that every shot that you're taking is going to go in. All it takes is one to go down and then the whole game shifts. And I think what quickly brings is exactly what you said, his ability to hit those above the break shots and also to get get out in transition as well. He He's basically a poor man's version of Darion Fox without the creation. That's the way I look at him. He's He's basically the offensive build of a poor man's Fox. And I think that maybe if he taps in, maybe he reaches full potential. Maybe he can have that kind of effect that Fox has, but I think Fox is on a different level, but from an offensive standpoint, his presence, his confidence gives me shades of Fox. And I think it would be uh, the the Raptors need a presence like that. What do you think? Fox is 2017. Shea is 2018. Maxi and Quickly are both 2020. Uh, they're all Kentucky. Are we missing any of other Kentucky guards over that time? I know like Ty Ty, but he hasn't popped off. Um, I'm trying to think, but already that's like an absurd amount of guard talent to give the NBA in a four year span. Um, as far as like the Fox comp, I don't know if I see a Fox comp for Quickly, but just because of the driving game maybe and and quickly i think is also a better three-point shooter Mm. but as far as just from the point of view of like quickly can give you more than what he's currently giving i think that makes a ton of sense i think that quickly has the skill sets now to be honest i haven't probably seen enough of quickly to make decisions on like his progressive reads what he does out of the pick and roll the different passes can he make the pocket pass can he make the lead pass over the top? Can he make the skip with both hands? I don't really know that much about his game. Um, To confidently say, I've seen him make reads before, but I don't know how often he does it, truly. Um, but I do know that he can get downhill. I do know that he can pull up, and I do know that he can shape up to other players as an off-ball guy. Um, All those things, to me, say that he is somebody who you can have possessions branch out from. And... Dennis right now is a guy who you don't have that many possessions branching out from. You have a possession, you have a reset, and then you have something different. Um, Emmanuel, I think, if he was on the Raptors, allows you to continue play, to keep working through a bunch of stuff. And I love that about his game. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, if he was ever close to De'Aaron, geez, you're cooking with gas, man. I would love that. But that's mostly my thoughts on on quickly. I would yeah. I would love to do the the film deep dive if he was on the Raptors, though. No, absolutely, absolutely. I'd, yeah, I'd steal, uh, I'd steal some synergy data from the Knicks. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I heard it's it's accessible these days, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Um, maybe maybe the foxes, maybe uh, a fox comparison is a little premature, but I'm I'm looking at presence. I'm looking at the offensive aggression. He he he, sh- give me that fox kind of vibe. Do I sure. think Fox is going to be the better player at the end of the day? Yeah. Because I think Fox is a couple steps ahead of him. But just to pick on uh, or to build on the Kentucky point, Devin Booker, another oh, Kentucky yeah, guard. Man. Tyler Hero is another one. And I'm missing, brother, this should have been the first name, Jamal Murray. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jamal <laughs> we, is 2016. Book yeah. is 13. 13, yeah. Hero is 19, 20? 
19, I think 19, 19 and yeah. 19 was the one we're missing. So yeah. 17 Fox, 18 Shea, 19 Hero, 20 is Maxi and Quickly, and then I don't know what's come after. But wow, the lineage right? of Kentucky guards is insane. Crazy, crazy. Um, so let's let's see if Masai brings at least quickly. I don't think I think those guys are out of reach that we mentioned. Maybe once upon a time, Maxi. Oh man, Maxi the Raptors would be perfect. So, he, he and so Scotty, isn't it funny that Scotty and Maxi were paired together for that Rising Stars thing, where they couldn't hit a shot together? Yeah. And now from that, like Rising Stars, of all the players that were there, the sh- the best two shot makers in this season has been Maxi and Barnes. Isn't that crazy? That is pretty funny, man. Um, all right, quick hits on some random NBA topics. A very hot one, Draymond Green. Who I propose WWE put him as an unlockable <laughs> character in uh, WWE 2K. We, I don't know why people are surprised. Draymond has been a wild man from time. This he's been doing this his entire career. Um, it was bad. Yes, I don't buy the idea that he was trying to sell something. I really don't. Um, but I, I, you gotta give him credit. He, He's trying he, to sell health insurance at this point, bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, he's out. He's suspended indefinitely. There's apparently some mental health evaluation that the right. NBA has implemented, which I thought was very questionable. Like you, you're basically saying there's something wrong with him, so go figure it out. Which I think would might be unfair, not to the player, but the person, the human being. Um, I think that was a very premature judgment on their end, but they have to do something. I think the NBA has shifted to this PG era where expression, emotion is frowned upon. Refs are quickly giving technicals, and that was another topic, and I don't want to take away from it. But in in a bubble, what's your take on the Draymond Green situation? I agree with you, the snap judgment to and and I haven't heard at this point what Draymond has said from his point of view. I saw some of the Ramona Shelburne stuff where Draymond is saying like he has gaps in his experience. Like he I didn't realize how long I was choking Rudy. I don't know how long I'm doing things. I kind of lose a sense of time. Those aren't good indicators probably. Um but also I don't like the NBA being paternalistic. You know, I don't like, I like the NBA as far as decision-making. You can, you can punish, but I don't like, unless Draymond has agreed, then all of this is null. But the NBA being like, you need mental help. I don't like that stance as their initial thing. But if Draymond is saying, I think I need mental help. And then the NBA says, we can we can help you with that and we'll structure that into the suspension then i think it makes sense if there's collaboration and i haven't heard draymond say one way or the other and there's also as we well know the the talks behind all of this could be the nba saying play ball with this like we're doing mental health approach play ball with this say the right things um all this kind of stuff factors in i think it probably makes more sense to put like an actual number on the game instead of the it's indefinite 
you have to do these things, yada, yada. But also from the other point of view, I if I was guarding Draymond or matched up against Draymond in a game, I'd be like, F-. like I you're an, always an <laughs> inch away from this guy just doing something insane. And from that point of view, I get why the NBA is like, it's not really fair to ask guys to go out there and play against Draymond knowing that something like this might happen. And so from that point of view, that's kind of how I feel about it. Um, But baseline, Draymond is being uh, extremely irresponsible. He is harming people continuously (laughs) in a way that is completely incongruent with playing basketball. He's just like, if you did this on the street, it's I'm not I'm not trying to be like pearl clutching white person. I get it <laughs> by the de- I wouldn't like if someone, you know, hits me in the face that he hit Nurkic. I'm not going to press charges on assault um, as long as they don't like, you know, catch a lick, grab my stuff afterwards, you know. <laughs> but if I just get swung on, I'm not saying like, oh, I was assaulted. I'm going to say, well, I got swung on. He snuck one on me, something like that. But by the book. He's like going out there and assaulting dudes, you know, like, <laughs> and that's no, uh, that's tough too, man. That's how I feel about that mostly. Non non basketball plays to say the least. Um, yeah. But from the Warriors' perspective, I've tweeted this. He's quickly becoming a liability than a necessity at this point. I think once upon a time he was very valuable. Uh, I think now he's he's not worn as welcome. But I also feel that they've protected him. And I think they've known about this for quite some time. And it also didn't do do them any favors, but now they're reaching a critical point. The dynasty appears to be over. Steph is pissed off after every game now telling guys we need more effort on the defensive end. Are, Are we witnessing the downfall of the Warriors at this point? I thought that we had already witnessed it in 2019 i was really happy at the idea that the raptors were the bookend on what i viewed as the greatest team of all time they didn't accomplish as much as jordan and the bulls and i don't think that curry is better than jordan or anything but i thought that clay draymond steph and KD was the greatest nucleus i'd ever seen of any agreed and, and and to be fair i haven't seen that much like i saw the nba heritage jordan games like a few of them I can't speak that much comparing across. Um, but I thought I was watching like the greatest team built ever. And I thought that the Raptors were the bookend and I thought it was over. And then they retooled and they won another one. Steph is so fantastic that I always wonder if they might be able to do it again. But I also now wonder if Draymond might not be a part of that. So, yeah. Another interesting storyline in the NBA. The NBA is full of them. All right, you know, we'll be here forever. I'm not going to re- revisit every single one. But John Morant is set to make a comeback. The Grizzlies are 6-17. and 17. The 25-game suspension is rounding the end. Do you think Jaw can save the season for the Grizzlies? At minimum, be a play-in team. Or is it too far gone? Uh, Probably. I think... The really difficult aspect of it. What are the Grizzlies right now? Six and seventeen. Lord, that's nasty. <laughs> and um, without Stephen Adams as well, right? They lost him earlier on, right? So that's a yeah. huge piece missing. I think, the, maybe not. Actually, a really interesting thing that happened with Jaw 
his first few years was that the Grizzlies won a lot of games without him. Like they had like a, what, like a 70% winning percentage without jaw. And they had a lot of guard depth and they had a lot of front court depth. And they had like some stuff that wasn't great on the wings, but th- some of their guards could play up like Dylan Brooks. And uh, they've kind of lost a lot of that. And the team just isn't as good. And they've also kind of fallen apart because of, you know, they were like big, braggadocious team. They talked a lot of trash. They have their fall from grace. If Jaw is able to drag them back into, you know, relativity or relevance, I should say, not relativity. If he's able to bring them back into relevance in the Western playoff picture, hell yeah. He's one of the most, like, fun players in the whole league. I hope that he's, you know, I'm not a gun guy myself, but I see, obviously, the hypocrisy in being in America and having a gun, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I also am a person who was like, if I'm in an establishment, I wouldn't want guns to be in there either. I get why people are saying, hey, don't do this. But I also get the hypocrisy aspect of it too. I hope that for his sake, because it's obviously not going to work with the NBA, I hope that for his sake, he's done promoting that stuff as openly and will just like play basketball and engage in his interests, you know, off of social media because a lot of people like gun stuff and gun ranges and collecting guns in America. It's part of the culture. It's not a culture I partake in, but it's, it's prevalent. And I just hope that he's able to keep that stuff tucked away for jaw and pals and can play basketball. That's my earnest hope. And if he can drag this team back, hell yeah, dude. Incredible. My earnest hope is whoever is part of his entourage should let them know no cell phones. Put it in the car, lock it up. You know, why Why do you need to document it? But I think one thing that's always being missed is that he's 24 years old. Young he's guy. The young guy, man, right? Young, a young millionaire. Stardom, all that good stuff. You're going to make some bad decisions. He made multiple bad decisions. Has he learned from them? I guess we'll find out. But in terms of a basketball standpoint, I'd, I'd he be... he also hasn't harmed anybody. exactly really really important (laughs) yeah yeah. you know it's now do they look at that and think like there's potential for harm i get it but he hasn't Mm -hmm. um i don't in my lifetime i don't expect to ever be seeing like some sort of you know coverage of like wow something happened with jaw and a gun that involved a discharge i i don't think so yeah i think he just like showing that off but yeah yeah, but I think from a basketball standpoint, I think it's going to be really tough for the for the Grizzlies to dig themselves out of this hole. They've they've battled health, but I think um, losing Stephen Adams was huge for them. Um, now Jaron Jackson Jr. is having to play multiple roles, both on the defensive end and be an offensive contributor, being undermanned. But they're having some success with you know David Roddy, Aldama. Some of the young guys are piecing it together. Is it enough? At this junction of the season, I'm not too sure. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see. I think Jaws a very exciting player. He has that Vince Carter-type presence, especially in terms of the flashiness and the dunking and whatnot, something that has been missing for years in the in the NBA. So it'll be exciting to have him back. And uh, 
hopefully the worst is behind him and he could just focus on playing basketball. Fingers crossed. Uh, somebody that I'm also excited about. Uh, I've been sticking in the Western Conference. I promise we're going to shift to the East at some point. Zion Williamson being fat shamed in public, man. Another kid, you know, people feel that once these guys are getting paid, that they could say and do whatever they want. It's not yeah. the case. Speaking to what we talked about before and what you mentioned, we're talking about another human being. We're talking about a young man trying to figure it out, trying to who, who's been dealing with injuries. Is it self-inflicted? Probably. Has he struggled with his weight? He's been very vocal about it. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on how some people approach Zion. Like, I know he's getting paid a ton of money. We we're hearing that his work ethic is not the best and so on and so forth. But I think there's an opportunity to help build him up, but they just continue to tear him down and they always use the money as a justification. What do you think about that? I think money is a justification for the way that they get moved around the way that they get traded I think money is a justification for the value that they add. They get paid money because they bring an absurd amount of value to these franchises. And the owners of these, of these franchises make a lot of money. Like they get paid for a purpose, firstly. And that's the value they add. Zion brings a ton of value. So his paycheck is earned, as is any M NBA players. You also are in you know, the public sector where people, part of what you do is you're going to be critiqued because it's like performance all the time. Um, as somebody who is an analyst for my life and my work, I think I critique without making it personal. I think I critique without making it odd or weird or hateful. They're playing basketball. Now, if somebody says, you know, Zion, I think that he needs to be in better shape or, you know, conditioning or all that kind of stuff. I think that's perfectly sensible. Scotty Barnes talked about his own his own conditioning at the end of last season and at the start of this one. You can frame these conversations in a proper way. And also on the interpersonal side, the people closest to Zion and the people within the Pelicans organization can certainly use more severe language if they want to. But in the media, we just got finished seeing Zion being criminally harassed about his off-court behavior and like don't get it twisted he was criminally harassed shamed online by a crazy amount of people his dirty laundry became like entertainment for everybody and what was happening in the middle of it was by definition criminal harassment absolutely blackmailing all this kind of stuff and everybody just thought it was jokes dehumanizing like at the core of what it was dehumanizing and the way that some people are using Zion's weight to play for laughs, to get off all these tropes about fat people, and just to like regurgitate everything that was most popular in 90s stand-up, where you're like, this guy's fat, look how much he eats, is nuts to me, dude. I Are you somebody who talks about basketball, or are you somebody who just like dehumanizes people on television because that's what people want to see? I understand people like the dirty, nasty, gross commentary. You can rise above that. You don't have to give that to people. I'm shocked at how Zion has been covered for years, to be quite honest with you. And all that to say, he probably probably could eat healthier, 
probably or could do probably could do you know an extra session of cardio whatever i'm sure that's part of it but the way he's being played for laughs he's nuts to me crazy yeah no i'm with you man i think the dehumanizing aspect for me is what really caught me and basketball analysts commentators purists are not critiquing him as a basketball player you know your job is to talk basketball what does his weight have to do with it is it impacting has somebody had a conversation saying that his weight is the reason why he's not playing games is he injured no nobody's having that conversation they're just looking at him and judging him and you know what we don't know what's happening off the court like you said He's been in the media for quite some time, a young man, all the attention on him. It's been on him since he's been in high school, going to Duke, a very popular program. It, it can go on and on. He's been in the spotlight. Some people are able to deal with it, like a LeBron. Some people can't. I can't think of an example. But I think you're looking at a young man who's going through it, who has a lot of pressure as a franchise player, and he has not delivered to whatever the expectation may be and rather than find an opportunity to build them up they're breaking him down dehumanizing him and potentially could contribute to his weight game maybe he eats when he's depressed maybe he eats we we don't know but i think we're missing that understanding and it's none of our business we don't need to know what's going on in his personal life but i think at minimum talk about basketball like, that's your job. Just talk about basketball and leave it at that. That's, I think Zion healthy is necessary for the game. And I think that they should be focusing more on that. Yeah, big time. Yeah. One more thing. Actually, no, a couple of things. One, the last one is very, very important. We got a budding rivalry going on. Bucks Pacers. We already know what happened with Giannis demanding the basketball after the 64-point performance. We saw them going at it. It was very chippy during the play-in. But I think this is what the NBA needs. You know, we need the entertainment. We need some we need some sandpaper. We need some aggression, you know, even though it's frowned upon and the rest are quick to give technicals if you celebrate whatever these days. But I love it, man. I love that the we're witnessing a rivalry being born right before us, and I think it's great for the game. What do you think, brother? I like rivalries a lot. When nobody cares about the Isaiah Thomas Celtics or the John Wall Wizards, but when one team is showing up in all black and they're doing, like, the funeral stuff, when those those teams were a lot more engaging because there was more, like, because of that rivalry, and John Wall wasn't like an era defining player. Isaiah Thomas wasn't, but everybody got to indulge more in that matchup because of how both teams viewed it. Rivalries are great. Now, I'm glad that the outcome of this is a rivalry, but like what actually happened is absurd. <laughs> it's it's really funny. It was ridiculous. Giannis, you probably just gotta let the like the people who are paid to sort this stuff out you got to let them do it i think but also i mean from the entertainment point of view seeing him sprinting all over the place trying to get the ball the like 
who has the ball and then for him at the end to be like I don't even think this is the real ball is just like it's perfect it's the it's the melodrama it's the pageantry of the NBA that has helped elevate it and it's you know has helped make it more compelling on the global scale these are all part of the the NBA formula Definitely. I think what's most impressive is that he was able to reach a locker room in four strides. I thought that was the most <laughs> impressive part. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I would be remiss if I did ask you this question. Some time has passed. Shohei Otani, he's a Dodger, not a Blue Jay. All the fiasco. I know I I played my role in in buying into the hype. I thought it was exciting. You know, just the idea that we were in the running and only to find out that we were leveraged. But how do you feel, brother? Sad, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure the MLB Twitter account retweeted John Morosi's like, he's going, he's on a plane to Toronto thing. Now, I didn't believe it when they said there was a press conference scheduled because... Nobody that I trusted said that. But when the MLB account is saying like Shohei Otani is en route to Toronto, you are not a fool for believing that. This is not like terrible media literacy. That is that is like the powers that be are telling you what is happening. And a credible source. And a credible source. John Rose is not a scrub. And then all of a sudden, you learn a few days later, Shohei Otani is watching this unfold at home with his dog hanging out and giggling, knowing that he's going to make more money because of this. And you're just like, well, that sucks. He is, he is, he signed the biggest contract in North American sports history. That much is known. He is the greatest baseball player to ever live, maybe not in accomplishments, but in talent level. And he lives up to that talent level every season that he plays. And I love watching him pitch. I know he wouldn't have pitched for a while. I love watching him hit. I think he is like just spellbinding. He is so cool. I would have been I would have gone to a lot of Jays games to 100%. watch this guy. So I was already looking at season tickets, man. I'm on the front, man. Yeah. So <laughs> Shohei would have been one of the most important signings in in uh, Toronto history, well, it would have been the most important by some measure, and it didn't happen. And instead, we get, you know, whoever. They haven't even signed anybody since then. It'll be underwhelming. It's all just sad, dude. Yeah. We missed out on a left-handed bat, a power bat at that. Yeah, no kidding. Right? A polarizing figure, somebody. They need to call me up. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's it, brother. That's it. Um, maybe I'll get to see that next summer. We'll, we'll, we'll try and uh, arrange that, but no, I thought it was uh, a huge missed opportunity. Now the Jays are, it reminds me of when the Raptors were going in for Giannis, they went all in for Giannis and they have no record. They had no backup plan and they ended up with Aaron Baines and Alex Len as the signees. Um, I really hope that's not the case for the Jays, but they are in no man's land right now. And I have no idea what they're going to do. It's, uh, well, maybe maybe Cordy Bellinger might help, but you know to go from Shohei and you know Cody Bellinger is not a scrub, but to go from Shohei to Cody Bellinger, it's. I think Cody Bellinger is cool as hell. He had an awesome year. He changed his approach to becoming like a more of a 
um, a two-strike hitter, all that kind of stuff. He has better, like, plate coverage, and he can spray the ball over the field now. I like Cody Bellinger. If the Blue Jays hadn't been in the Otani talks and so close, and it, it didn't seem like they're at the one-yard line, um, Bellinger as the takeaway, I would have been like, that's really cool. But in comparison, ah, jeez, not much, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, I think I think we rambled on long enough, brother. I think, well, oh, damn, we're out two hours, man. Folks, that is a pod. Samson, thank you, brother. Um, yeah. I it ended up going on a lot longer than I thought. But I think it would be I, my initial thought was going to be hour, hour and fifteen. But you know, this is what we do, man. We get together, we chop it up, we talk about everything. And uh, I appreciate you, man. Um, I appreciate the work that you've been doing. The live reaction pods have been dope. Um, I'm not going to compliment you too much because I know you don't like it, but Brother, you do fantastic work. I appreciate you being the voice of the people. Um, let people know what else you got cooking, man. Uh, just Raptors Republic stuff. Stay tuned with that. I used to do stuff with Yahoo Sports, but then Yahoo Sports shut down, which was crazy. Yeah. And everywhere is laying off people. And that means that it's more important than ever to support the people that you like. If you're someone who likes me, uh, the easiest way to support myself and other burgeoning young writers, um, a diverse set of them, uh, subscribe over at RaptorsRepublic.com. That's the that's how we keep at least some semblance of journalism alive without it being tied to Rogers or Bell and uh, in Toronto anyway. So that's I guess my pitch. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um I'm due to re up my subscription, which. I love, man. I love. It was either you guys or the athletic, and I'm glad that I made the right choice. I love it. Um, you guys do fabulous tell work. Eric that at the next game, I'm, at, I'm gonna say <laughs> they chose me. Uh, yeah, man. No, but folks, if you have not subscribed yet, and you're doing yourself a huge disservice if you're a Raptors fan. Raptors Republic does great work. Samson does fantastic work. Same with Lewis and all the other great people that are there. Support local writers. Uh, I was going to say support local, but you guys aren't produce, but support support local <laughs> writers. Um, they do great work. They work hard and they're just great dudes and they deserve your support. So definitely check them out. Um, yours truly don't know if I'm going to have time to do a reaction pod tonight, but I think Samson, you're, you're back for a reaction pod, right? Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, so be on the lookout. If I, if you don't get one tonight, I'll definitely be available for the next one. And then you'll get a two for one special on my next reaction pod. And if you have not done so already, please subscribe and rate and review the podcast. It'll mean so much if you take time to do so. Do the same for Samson at Raptors Republic on YouTube, on the Rapcast. Subscribe, rate it. It's great stuff. I listen to it. And I think you should listen to it too. And any parting thoughts for the game tonight? You think the Raptors go for another dub? Or are the Hawks going to adjust? After seeing the first game, after seeing Trey pop off, I think Raptors will take the two games sweep. It's crazy as that sounds. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, brother. Closer to the pizza party. Yeah, that's it. That's, I thought it was a joke at first, but I guess it's real. But anyways, folks, we're out of here. And until the next episode, everyone, please continue to stay healthy and stay safe. Good people. Peace.